1: Hello! Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's Food for Thought. This is the podcast that's on a mission to equip you all with the evidence-based advice that you need to live and breathe a healthy lifestyle. You pick and choose what you consume, what you listen to, and apply it in a way that works for you because we are all unique. I'm Rhiannon Lambert, registered nutritionist, Sunday Times best selling author, and founder of the Harley Street Clinic Retrition, and of course, the evidence based supplements company Retrition Plus. In each of these episodes, we have incredible guests who are at the forefront of their fields who will be giving us the trusted advice. That's what we all need and answering your burning questions, which, let's be honest, in nutrition, the questions seem to be never ending these days. Now, this series combines some of the many highlights over the years and I hope will continue to support your nutrition and well being. Dieting is often unsustainable. And I think this is something we see in the nutrition clinic all the time. One analysis, for instance, of 14 popular diet programs found that weight loss was mostly reversed after 12 months. So any results all gone a year down the line. And there are so many weight loss plans out there to choose from. And all too many of us choosing them and trying them out. But what I want you to know is that we don't all respond to a one size fits all diet in the same way. That's half the problem. It's not you being a failure, it's the fact the diets are failing you. So this final bite-sized episode of Food for Thought had to be a Weight Loss 101. What better way than to make sure that we arm you all with the advice that you need to know about weight loss and the sustainable measures to achieve it. Let's start this episode with a conversation with Dr. Joshua Woolrich, whose ethos really is about escaping diet traps. I think it's such an important conversation that we have here that we've selected for this episode from privilege, what to do for losing weight, health and psychology, the impact on us, of course, in both of those areas. Our BMI, should we even be taking that seriously now? BMI is a calculation. There's Lots of putting in versus taking out um type of discussion here, so enjoy
2: it's always finding things to avoid right it mm. kind of that tends to be the um that tends to be the go to doesn't it it's it's what what is not going to work for me what am I in quote intolerant to what am i what should I be avoiding because it's bad in quotes for me rather than just let's focus on the good stuff but but let's be honest, the reason why we do that is because. If we're talking about taking out, it makes us feel more safe and more secure because taking out everything around food is also wrapped up in our desire to be thin and what we look like. So taking out feels safer than adding in because yeah. we, we've spent so much of our life, the vast majority of us trying to remove what we eat or what we want to eat because we're concerned about that making us put on weight. And so in thinking about including, changing our mindset to what can we put in can feel really scary because that is wrapped up in this fear of, uh, but if I add stuff in, I'm gonna be eating in quotes too much and then I'm gonna put weight on and oh, it's just much safer for me to stay what I'm doing and take it out instead, because then I've, you know, best of both worlds. If you're somebody who has been exposed to weight stigma, if you're someone that's been exposed to being told that you're too fat and you need to lose mm-hmm. weight, if that's something that has happened in your life, everything starts getting wrapped up in, all of your decisions start getting wrapped up in that. Um, yeah. And that continues to get propagated by the medical profession as well. And it is, it's is—it's mm. a big issue.
1: I think um, it was something that um, I realized going to university to study nutrition was appearances and aesthetics. For me, it was life-changing, have nothing to do with your health. And it's mm. one of the first things we're taught because obviously you can be underweight, a um, healthy weight, and still not be ideally healthy. It doesn't matter how you look, it's what's going on. Obviously, on the inside, and what you've said is right, and we see it in clinic again and again and again. The psychology and nutrition that's interwoven together are rife, and it's incredibly important to make behavior changes or to let go. You have to be able to let go of these inbuilt rules and ways that we've seen the world. It's like unlearning that's the way I used to describe it unlearning everything you thought you knew. And starting again, and one of the biggest things that we always found in the clinic, and this is from the very early days before I even had a team at Retrition, it was just myself, was that BMI was incredibly confusing for my clients. And I think it's still, still in the same position now. Um, What are your thoughts on using, obviously, because you come from the medical side of things as well, Mm. BMI in um, terms of health today?
2: are incredibly problematic Mm -hmm. um it's uh, yeah i mean it's it's still i I, i'm not surprised it's still confusing for people because nothing's changed i mean it's just it's the same it's the same um simplistic equation to give you a number that doesn't really mean anything Mm -hmm. like it, it literally doesn't mean anything it it is a it is a number based on your height and weight that means nothing it's just a number and we have assigned meaning to it because as humans and as as a society and as a, as medics we like we like brackets we like kind of black and white thinking we like putting things into, into sections and putting things into categories and so we we kind of we want to do that in terms of well here's a number we can determine okay good well this now i can use this number and decide whether or not i need to exercise more but it's it's really harmful mm-hmm. um your, your weight, your your health is not defined by that number in any yeah. way, shape or form. And even just at a simplistic note, you can tell that based on the fact that there are strict cutoffs between these supposed categories. And so if you, you know, if you put on like half a kilogram, you're suddenly unhealthy the next day. That's clearly nonsense. Like that's just mm. not how that works. Um, and and yet we are still very strict with these cutoffs. Um, BMI as at a population level can be useful. and what yeah. I mean by that is you know when you because there are so many flaws to it, when you then take an overall measure of millions of people in a population, mm-hmm. those flaws kind of even out and so some of those discrepancies can can kind of get lost. and so as at a, at a population level as a statistic, it can be useful for certain things but at an individual level, it's useless. Like, mm. And it's super lazy. We have, like, uh, even in a very weight-centric environment of going through medical school, we learn an awful n- different number of ways of assessing somebody's health. Yeah. And BMI is never the, the, the be-all and end-all of that in any way, shape, or form. And mm. if we remove BMI entirely from our assessment, we can still just as easily work out and assess somebody's health. And yeah. I would argue that we should be because it actually confuses matters because it, it gives us a bias because BMI is probably one of the first things. And so if we're, let's say someone's BMI is 27, which ironically, statistically at a population level is supposedly the, the healthiest um, BMI, even mm. though it's in the overweight category. Mm. Um, we, we have a, a BMI of 27 and that's the first thing that you see on a screen at a doctor's office and you go, okay, well, Automatically, before you assess anything else, it's labeled as overweight and therefore unhealthy. Yeah. And so everything else you're looking for, your bias can change what and how you interpret those following results. I'll give, give you one example. Something like blood pressure. I've spoken to many people who are who live in larger bodies, who would be, who would identify as fat, who have had their blood pressure taken an extraordinary amount of times because doctors or nurses didn't believe the blood pressure result that was being given. Mm, yeah. Because they expected it to be high. They expected yeah. it to be bad. And so they would take a blood pressure, it would be normal, and they'd go, oh, well, we'll, we'll just take it again. Mm. And I had one one person I spoke to had it taken six times before yeah. they finally were like, oh, well, this
1: is I your mean, blood I guess pressure. I guess
2: it's okay. <laughs> we'll make sure we check it again next time. Like they yeah. still didn't believe it. Yeah. And something like BMI can cause that change in your mind, can cause that bias to take place where you've got a BMI reading and then you suddenly go, oh, well, crap, I need to make sure that their blood pressure's not high. Oh, well, it looks normal. Maybe we're using the wrong machine. Maybe yeah. we should check it again. Maybe we should bring you in again early next time to take it again. Like, that, it's it's not good. It leads to no. bad healthcare.
1: What are the best practices for people? Where should they go? What are the sustainable methods that you would encourage somebody that's really confused and just doesn't know what to do because their doctor just isn't listening?
2: Uh, Well, so I don't think that sustainable methods for weight loss are necessarily a thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is I don't think there's any real evidence that we can point to to say, well, this is one of them. because the in regards to the the evidence that we do have in regards to the research that we do have around people who have lost weight and for some reason have kept it off still the vast majority of them are still on what you would class as a diet Mm -hmm. they are still constantly tracking and counting what they're eating they are doing quite obsessive and aggressive exercise on a daily basis they are weighing themselves every day they are very rigid in their eating habits, so they they don't allow themselves to be flexible with their food. That those are the criteria that that represent the population who have lost weight and are keeping it off. And that's disordered
1: eating. Is what yeah, I yeah. And that. So
2: that's not yeah. healthy to me. That doesn't make any sense. And so I can't, with good conscience, if somebody asks me what are the sustainable methods of weight loss, I can't give them any any an answer to that. Hmm. But what I would say, and what I do say, is I go, well, let's. This might be this might sound weird at first, but let's actually just focus on health. And they're like, "Well, what do you mean? No, 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 I weight loss, <laughs> but weight loss is health. No, 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 it's not. Like, let's mm. focus on health. Let's focus on health promoting behaviors because weight loss isn't a health promoting behavior." Weight loss might occur as a byproduct of health-promoting behaviors, but it also might not. And regardless as to what happens with your weight, those health-promoting behaviors have still taken place and are still yeah. ongoing, and your health has therefore still improved. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for us to accept that because we believe weight defines our health, but it's simply not true. So yeah. I, I I tend to first ask and address those things and try and pick apart some of that, that thinking that, always means that people go straight to weight. And then I go, well, let's look at some stuff that is actually health promoting. Let's, And if your weight changes, that's fine. I'm not here to, to kind of condemn you for w- wanting to lose weight because, Our society is built around that premise. And I, at a point, have wanted to. And still, every so often, I I slip into these practices of going, oh, well, I must improve my health, I must lose weight. And Mm -hmm. then I go, hang on, Josh, challenge that. Why is weight the thing you're thinking about straight away?
1: How do you feel? Are you sleeping well? Are you feeling happy? (laughs) There's so many other things, aren't there, I guess, when, when looking at these types of areas. Because I do think disordered eating practice is rapidly on the rise. And this is something that I have a huge... It's very difficult because it's all psychological, a lot of it is psychological, as you know, Um, and diet culture just seems to be, it's just interwoven into our very being, isn't it? Um, Let's touch on privilege in this area, Mm. Josh, because I know that you, um, you speak about this a lot and you actually, I think you opened the book at one point by saying, you know, I'm a white male living in the UK. I'm a mm. doctor, and I know that that straight away, being male and being white, puts me in a position of privilege. Could you um, delve into how that impacts health and outcomes, health outcomes?
2: Uh, all, pretty much all of our health outcomes, yeah. <laughs> which is the <laughs> which is the problem. I mean, uh, the the main reason why, um, the, the main determinant as to what my what my life expectancy is going to be um is based on where i was born and um the color of my skin and the parents that i was born to none of those things i have any control over and people don't like that sentiment because we like to believe we're in control of our health we like to believe Mm. that we're in control of the of the good or bad things that that we that, that that happen to us in life, we we like to think that we can control all of those, and and we're just we're doing the right things, and good things have happened to us because of that. Like we're able to shop at Whole Foods because we deserve it. Like we we like to think these things because it makes us feel better, but it's not true. And our we we have almost anybody has some privileges that other people don't and they're things that we haven't earned they're things that we have we're either born with or have occurred throughout our life that mean that we it doesn't mean things are easy necessarily but it means that things aren't as hard as if we didn't have those things Mm. so you know it wasn't i didn't automatically get good grades at school but I was more likely to get them and it was easier for me to get them because I was privileged enough that my parents had money and were able to send me to a private secondary school. Yeah, so it didn't, mm. it didn't give me the grades, but it was a massive privilege to go there yeah. and to have the opportunity. And I, we, we need to start acknowledging some of these things because otherwise there's an awful lot of shame and personal responsibility that we place on others that aren't in a position of privilege like we are because mm-hmm. we treat them like they're just not trying hard enough. Whether that's health, whether that's weight loss, because again, not the same thing, um, whether, that's, whether that's anything.
1: I love this conversation with health coach and personal trainer, Graham Tomlinson. He has an immensely successful, huge social media following, and we discuss all sorts of things which he regularly does on his social media channels, which I think are really helpful, discussing foods that help you stay satisfied and full, the quality, of course, of the nutrition that you eat, which we're both very aligned on there, and the role that diet plays in our overall health there's a difference in how foods are processed in our bodies once they've been super manufactured as well and I think cooking from scratch is so underrated and actually I guess eating more than before in terms of lockdown with cooking from scratch I guess it can lead to more weight loss or I like to call it body fat loss what are your views on that I
3: think I think ultimately I, I agree with you um although it is we need to stress that that's kind of inadvertent so When we're cooking from scratch, we will tend to cook more nutritious, filling, fibre-rich, high-protein foods. Mm. um, Or or that's the idea, hopefully. And we're also more in control of the ingredients that we're putting in, so we're more likely to be informed on, you know, rough calorie values of certain foods. Whereas if we're kind of ordering takeaways and having ultra-processed, ready meals all the time, we're, we're probably less likely to be in control of that. And ultimately... I think if a, a large, or maybe it's already been done, a large um, study was done between lots of people who cook from home and um, mm. people who don't. I think the calorie intake would probably be less with those that are cooking from home because yeah. um, a lot of those kind of fresh ingredients um, that are really good for us are tend to be lowering calories. And um, as you say there, protein and fiber are really essential for feeling fuller for longer. So there's mm. less likelihood of us wanting to eat excess calories if we feel full. So that's another kind of simple reason for basing a lot of our nutrition from from home cooked meals. It's, um, it's like, you know, people always say back in my day, uh, you know, like your grandmother <laughs> yeah. says we cooked everything from scratch mm. and not everything would have been totally great back then. You know, I'm pretty sure they had some, some stuff that wasn't overly great for us. But um, ultimately, when it comes down to it, I think, yeah, basing... Basing our diets, if you're wanting to lose fat on um, home-cooked meals, is definitely something I would encourage.
1: But what other foods can support us, I guess, feeling full and support our overall nutrition?
3: Yes, so you know, high-protein high diets are well, have been well-documented recently, haven't they? And uh, the marketing has gone into overdrive with them. But um, <laughs> yeah. we touched on it before, and foods high in fibre tend to have the same kind of effect when we, we feel full, um, and this is, as you know, because they'll probably take a little bit longer to digest. It's just a little bit harder for us to digest them. Um, so they tend to, to help us feel fuller for longer, which is is great. And they probably do have a higher thermic effect than starches as well. So you'd be burning more calories digesting them um, compared to things like bread or uh, white pasta, for example. Mm, um, yeah. So those kind of foods, and it's there's so many sources of them. You know, instead of having white bread which i probably prefer to brown bread you could switch to brown bread um switching to whole grain rice including lots of beans and things like that you know you can mix them into lots of different dishes um and you know a little bit of them probably goes a long way and it's not just in terms of composition fiber is so important and i think we don't eat enough of it collectively. And when we're trying to reduce things that are you know, really bad, like bowel cancer, for example, that mm. you know, there's so much evidence out there to suggest that high fiber diet is essential yeah. in, in reducing the risk of that, um, which when you consider there's a lot of really tasty, you know, foods out there that are high in fiber, it seems like mm. a good opportunity to take.
1: And I think it's so important to reiterate to everybody listening, that it's also the quality of what you eat and, You know, sometimes if we think too much on numbers, you're forgetting about the fundamental aspects your body requires, like we've already mentioned fiber, we've already mentioned protein. And, you know, we also know calories in terms of a margin and error, they're not 100%. So some people find they count religiously and nothing happens because they may be counting inaccurately. You don't actually know the overall impact if you're literally living your life number for number. So it's, it's such an interesting area. It, of course, there's no disputing energy in, energy out, balance and yeah. equation because it makes perfect sense. But what is difficult, I think, for everybody is actually understanding this margin of error. Um, the fact that it yeah. doesn't quite work like that once the calories are inside your body. And instead of maybe shaming a food item, I love what you've done on your your Instagram feed. You, you put Nutella on toast versus avocado on toast, and you said demonized with the Nutella, (laughs) and I I think idolized or something for the avocado? Idolized, yeah, Idolised, yeah. And I was like, that's brilliant, because the avocado on toast contains more calories, but contains way more nutrients than the Nutella, and actually you'll probably absorb all of the Nutella calories, but you wouldn't all of the avocado on toast, even though it's got more calories. Um, In most cases, in terms of that, when it comes to reaching fitness goals, do you think diet then does have a pretty big role to play.
3: I think it I think it does, yeah. I think that the diet has a bigger role to play than the mental capacity you put into thinking about kind of burning extra calories yeah. here and there. Yeah. I think um I think definitely because you have to eat. You will be burning just by existing, 70% of the calories you burn each day comes from your basal metabolic rate and that's just by living and breathing. Um, 10% will come from digesting food, 5% from from exercise, planned exercise, if you do that. And the remaining 15% is from, you know, fidgeting and uh, mm. <laughs> walking and things like that. So it's quite a big percentage, that 15%. And given the fact that it's really sustainable, you know, you can go for walks, you can do more chores around the house, uh, you can play with the kids in the garden. Um, it seems like a good opportunity to take to burn extra calories if weight loss was the goal um rather than kind of tying yourself up to an insane kind of dvd where you're having to kind of jump around your living room um (laughs) so yeah but ultimately you know the the diet is for me the most important thing you know people always say that that saying you can't out -out train a bad diet Mm. (laughs) but it's probably true
4: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: And now the fabulous Ilana Mulstein, who's a registered dietitian over in the States. I loved our conversation. We talk all things from fasting to volume eating, uh, how we language and role model the discussion around diet, what we do every single day, snacking after dinner. I think it's all those types of things that basically everybody really wants to know. So here we go.
0: When it comes to a weight loss perspective, I've always been in the notion from studying metabolism and biology and even just in my personal weight loss journey and studying with clients, I've always seen that people burn not exactly 50% more, but at least several more calories in the first half of the day than the second half of the day when you're actually active and using your brain and up and about. So from my perspective, if anyone is going to do intermittent fasting where I have a client who's interested, I always prefer them to eat in the first half of the day and then, you know, after a filling snack at around two three like be you know done for the day if only and only if it's working for them and
1: yeah and i do think that there's there's too much emphasis on um well, we lose that common sense approach that you've literally just said it's common sense when you are extremely active and as we unwind towards the end of the day, and also biologically, I guess, you you don't really want to have a hugely heavy meal to sleep on if you're going to bed pretty soon after eating a meal, but lots of people put numbers and time frames on nutrition and diet and health, so perhaps you can't eat after 6 p.m., or it could be seven or eight, or whatever rigid time, whereas, Actually, that's not really what we're talking about, are we? We're just talking about the fact that your body will probably do more with the energy that it's given throughout a prolonged time period. It, your body doesn't know, oh, it's six o'clock, therefore I cannot eat right. right now.
0: <laughs> right. And so I have uh, I have a big principle within my weight loss program uh, called Dinner and Done, where I really, really try to encourage people to be dinner and done because I find it's really that late night snacking that is so emotional and behavioral and and really not nutritional, right? Like, unless you're someone who starved themselves all day and you know, now, because then I find it's late at night, people don't eat all day, then they eat all night, they just snack in front of the television and they start to justify, well, I didn't eat all day and, and just so much sabotaging, it's not good for digestion, for going to sleep and so forth so listen if you're working out late at night or you have some you're some sort of exception of the rule or you take a medication or a supplement of course you could have something at night but it is definitely uh, a principle i try to encourage within my program because i find it just helps so many people uh, but i've never in my life actually told someone a particular time you know i have clients who at least pre-pandemic are in the office till 8 p.m at night like i would never tell mm-hmm. them stop eating at six if they're in meetings till eight and they don't have that opportunity. So I'm always just like, whenever you have dinner, you have that last meal, try to be dinner and done. I always tell everyone, it always comes down to what I call my two bunnies, my core four, <laughs> um, which is drink lots of water, drink water first before your meals, really try to go for veggies most, like not just veggies some, but really try to eat up on lots of veggies, especially if you're a volumeter like me.
1: When you're young, you, you kind of stop when you're hungry and full. Well, you start when you're hungry and you stop when you're full. You'll cry until you get food when you're hungry. What do you think has got us to a point where we've completely lost that innate ability to regulate hunger hormones?
0: It's such a great question. And by the way, it is my... Th- favorite thing to watch my kids practice Mm. intuitive eating, Um, because I didn't have that. And so I think what it comes from, at least in my childhood, I really think it came down to modeling. Uh, Mm. You know, I never saw my parents leave any food on their plate. So I never left any food on mine. I think, you know, when it comes to nature versus nurture, there is so much in nurture that can help or hurt you when it comes to a relationship with food. My father has all these stories because he really battled with his weight when I was a kid. And now he's down 60 pounds with me and has kept it off for like eight years. So I'm so proud of him. Mm -hmm. He's like the beacon of health now. I Mm -hmm. love it. But, um, you know, I, I watched him devour and devour and my mom just devour food and binge on food. And... I think it at an early age I didn't I was never told like are you hungry are you full do you want any more it was all just a food free-for-all and all the language around food was based on food addiction and food obsession so my dad used to give us this line at, like on our way to a wedding or something and he would be like hey kids what's better than food and then he would say, "Scream! Free food! <laughs> like, oh, like right. really, <laughs> really toxic! Like really, yeah. really toxic! Uh, bad stuff!" And so, you know, I think obviously we're born with an innate skill to, you know, have a sense, an intuitive sense of eating. But I really think it could either be nurtured within your household, or, you know, or completely squashed altogether. So I'm thankful when I see my kids practice, you know, a sense of not having to finish a bag of chips or a full slice of cake and things like that and say they're full uh, and satisfied because it it goes to show that, you know, my husband and I are, are thankfully practicing that to some degree.
1: Yeah, it's all in the language we use and the role role modeling is so important and it's something we definitely underestimate. And, but it's not too late for us adults, of course. Um, and for people listening, never. there is a way, isn't there, of finding... So, Ilana, finding a balance is what I guess I'm trying to say between... Oh, listening if, to by the boy, way, it is never to
0: too late to get it together. Yeah. I have clients who are... I mean, my dad, my dad is 65. I mean, he is on it. I mean I have clients sixties, seventies, I mean eighties even. It's never too late to get it together and it's especially never too late to acquire a healthier relationship with foods
1: and to conclude this episode i had to finish with leanne she's a wonderful dietitian leanne ward based over in australia and i just loved our discussion so much we really are aligned we talk on the benefits around dieting for those that perhaps want to go and embark upon it Um, set point theory which i find fascinating i write about that in my book the science of nutrition Uh, weight loss versus fat loss of course the language we use there is really key and important and factors that determine in our individual body fat percentages as well so here we go a lot of people will be looking for weight loss and probably assuming that if they want to lose weight it's got to be this militant uh, routine and this strict diet Uh, what are your thoughts on that
4: type of belief Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really common thought process for a lot of people. And I'm here to tell everyone that, no, you absolutely don't need to be militant, but you do need to be two things in my experience, Rhiannon. And that is A, in a calorie deficit, and be consistent because most people who try to lose a little bit of weight either are not in a calorie deficit so you know they're eating really healthy and they're exercising and that's wonderful but it's still a little bit too much for their body so they're not seeing those sort of results that they would like or they're just not consistent for long enough because what they're doing is just too strict and you know they're only able to do it for a couple of weeks um, which is honestly you know, totally normal because we don't want to give up all our favorite foods. So I'm here to tell you that there is absolutely room for your favorite foods, carbohydrates, days off the gym, a couple of extra sweets, all that is okay, it can absolutely fit. Um, But you know, you you just need to be consistent over time to get those results, which um, unfortunately a lot of people aren't or can't be you touched on calorie deficit so let's go let's go into that because Mm. it's
1: not that straightforward I I think it can be confusing because of course there's the assumption that you could just eat calories consisting of chocolate and be in a deficit and that's going to help you (laughs) see the results you need if you know what I mean
4: Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's sort of two schools of thought. And as you, as we mentioned before, I jumped on this um, this podcast with you, Rianne, and you were mentioning TikTok. And I've been on the app for maybe about a year now. And there's a huge push from, you know, personal trainers, uh, you know, just fitness, young people, even, you know, 15, 16 year olds who now have, you know, a million followers online, thanks to this brain app we call TikTok, who are interested in health and fitness. And you see the same consistent messaging. If you want to lose fat, be in a calorie deficit. And that is the messaging that is all over social media at the moment. And Mm. I'm not here to disagree with it, Rhiannon. I'm just here to say that it's as simple and as difficult as that. And I think a lot of people, and when we say things like, you know, as health professionals, to lose weight being a calorie deficit, all that's teaching, you know, a 13-year-old, a 15-year-old, an 18-year-old, a young person is count your calories. And that is absolutely not the message that I want to send here today because there is so much more to life than weighing all of your food out, inputting it into a nap, trying to hit your macros, trying to stay under your calorie amount. But it it honestly is very, very important for weight loss. But there are some things that we can do that allow us to be in a calorie deficit that don't mean that we have to actually count calories long-term as well. I think for a lot of people, um, particularly working under the guidance with a health professional, such as a registered dietitian, It can be, you know, safe and sustainable anywhere um, from about sort of 8 to 16 weeks. I don't like to keep my clients in deficits for longer than that. And if you look at, you know, um, a lot of, you know, women and men doing bodybuilding comps, some of those guys are dieting 6 to 12 months of the year. So metabolic and mentally, afterly as well, that, that sort of competition phase, there's all sorts of things going on as well. So I think that shorter deficits are absolutely better, but it doesn't mean that they have to be super, super strict because you're going shorter with them, if that makes sense i'm really really about that lifestyle approach we want you to actually change your baseline over time and i work with within a one-on-one coaching program for my ladies rihanna but it's a 12-week coaching program but i always say i want you to think with 12 months in mind because even 12 weeks it's such a short amount of time Mm. we we can't really achieve too much we can achieve some wonderful health behaviors but in terms of long-term fat loss that's actually going to stay off long term you know once we lose it we don't want to regain it again i guess there's no you know, absolutely evidence-based, conclusive research to back it up. But there have been some small studies that have pointed out that our biology and our genetics can predetermine that upper and lower limit of body weight gain and loss, so our Mm. set point. However, the particular i guess like set point that our bodies have these limits are actually determined by behavioral interaction and some environmental factors. so i love the quote rhiannon that says um genetics loads the gun but environment Mm. pulls the trigger meaning that okay yes we can have you know we can be big bone we can have some you know genetics that we're never really going to change but the food that you eat the exercise you do how you talk to yourself the water that you drink the sleep that you get all of that is incredibly important and has an impact over time as well, not just being in a calorie deficit. <laughs> and for most people, that's so strict that what happens is the longer and harder you diet for, the the more we can sort of um, drop our metabolism down over time, which, which is not ideal. And I think that that... Obviously, you know, not obviously, but I think that that can contribute to that set point theory and that chronic yo-yo dieting mm. increasing over time because what we're losing, we're looking at weight loss when we should really be losing at looking, look, you know, looking at losing fat loss over time. We can't change those genetics that we were dealt with, but... We also don't want to use that as an excuse. And as I mentioned, and I'm going to say my favourite quote again, Rhiannon: Genetics loads the gun, but yeah. environment pulls the trigger. Yeah. Meaning that all of these things that we do are so incredibly important. Just because you know your your parents had diabetes, or just because you come from a family that has struggled with heart disease or obesity, doesn't necessarily mean that you don't do anything to try and help yourself. You know, the food and the quality that you eat matters. The environment that you have matters. The exercise you do matters. The water and the the nutrients that you get in, that all matters. So Mm. I think the first factor is genetics, but I wouldn't say that it's not modifiable. I would say that it, um, you know, causes some people to maybe start off on the back foot, but that's okay. There are definitely things that we can do to um, assist us there. And I would also say probably the other factor, Rhiannon, would be um, dieting and weight loss history. As I mentioned, like that yo-yo dieting, because Mm. you can end up changing your set point over time. So I think that that's one. One big factor that not a lot of people consider when it comes to sort of determining your weight is because your body sort of likes that set point, and the more you play with that, the more you might end up uh, having a larger set point over time. And mm-hmm. I think that there are also, you know, some medical conditions, things like um, I don't know, PCOS, hypothyroidism. You know, those are things that might make it more difficult to lose body fat. But they don't entirely determine your weight you know you can still learn to optimize your condition work with your health professional and your team um, and actually we've seen a lot of clients being able to to lose body fat safely and sustainably over time from optimizing um, their health conditions but working with their whole you know primary healthcare team their doctor their dietitian their exercise professional it's not a one-man job when it comes to a lot of these medical conditions
1: Thank you to all of our amazing experts for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the final episode of my special series of Food for Thought. But I do truly hope that you've learned lots. That's the whole goal of this podcast over the last eight weeks. And that we have deciphered fact from fiction in some of the most heavily discussed areas of nutrition. I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you listeners. I... Couldn't do it without you. I can't believe we're on series 14. And if you do have the time and you are a fan and you want me to keep going with this podcast, then please do kindly leave a review if you can on your podcast app because that's a way that we can, of course, help and reach more people. And if you're looking for more information to help, then perhaps check out my latest book, Deliciously Healthy Pregnancy. Of course, there's also my Sunday Times bestseller, The Science of Nutrition and Renourish A Simple Way to Eat Well. You can, of course, go and book in for one to one nutrition consultations at the Retrition Clinic, and you'll find lots of healthy recipes if you just head over to Retrition.com. Plus, excuse the pun, but Retrition Plus <laughs> is now here. So, for evidence based supplements you can trust, go and check out RetritionPlus.com. And, of course, follow me on all social channels at Retrition and at RetritionPlus.